All right, you bunch of yahoos, strap yourselves in for another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity. In other words, shut up, sit up, and pay attention. And welcome back to another episode of Toxic Masculinity. We've got my co-host, the, the meanest, fiercest fighter in the world, Don the Predator Fry, and yours truly, Dan to be seven here. We're... From of toxic masculinity, we're here to entertain you in a uh, masculine kind of way, and the world could use a little bit more masculinity ingested into it. So we're here to entertain, offend, defend anything and everything that we care to. And uh, you know, if you get a little bit offended about it, your prerogative is to either watch or not. That is still a choice you have. Better take that choice now because who knows the way this wacky world is going. It, you may not have, not have a choice soon so but you know anyway there gentlemen uh tony would you like to introduce uh, our guest there tony is the voice behind the microphone the all-knowing all-being tony martinez are you there well tony just passed that buck to me he's over there making all kinds of hand signals and stuff oh so okay because we'll all this is my good friend for many years mr david hebler um, I've known Dave since, well, at least the early 1980s, and uh, his brother was actually my immediate superior in Special Forces when I was still in the military, and that's how I met Dave. And Dave's had a long career in martial arts, but his what made him famous, so to speak, was the fact that he spent several years as the personal bodyguard to the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, and traveled with Elvis, was at concerts with Elvis, was at Graceland with Elvis, and has a whole long litany of fantastic stories about what it's like to be out on the road with the most famous rock star in the world. Oh, you bet, oh, Elvis the pelvis, you betcha. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, Dave, what, what can you what can you tell, start us off with? What I mean, what what uh, got you into the a bodyguard type of work? And ironically, let me, let me go off with one tangent. I have a tendency of doing this, to go off on the tangents. I don't know if it's ADD or what exactly, but uh, um, I happened to watch the movie The Bodyguard last night, starring Kevin Costner. So I kept thinking it's so big fitting that I should be watching The Bodyguard last night and now having you on here today. So. Well, I would have liked to have had uh, Kevin's experiences <laughs> as, as portrayed in that movie. Uh, of course, reality is sometimes a little bit different, but uh, fantasy is also uh, running rampant, too, when you're, when you're dealing with somebody as famous as uh, Elvis Presley. So because when did you, I mean, how, I guess, how young were you at that time that you got involved with Elvis Presley? Well, I was sitting in my uh, karate school in uh, Glendora, California, and I, I got a phone call from um, a guy by the name of George Waite, who was a uh, uh, Kempo black belt uh, uh, training uh, with Ed Parker in uh, Santa Monica. And he, he, notified, he notified me that they were going to have a bunch of the guys were getting together and having a workout that coming Friday and uh, invited me to come and join them. I hadn't seen these guys in quite a while, so I decided I would 
take the three hour one way trip across LA to get to Santa Monica. And uh, I did, and we got out on the mats and we we're having a good time and, uh, you know, beating up each other, which is kind of fun. And um, I noticed a commotion at the door and I, I, you know, I look and here come, uh, oh my God, Elvis Presley. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is he doing here? So he ended up um, standing, uh, you know, watching the class and he's pretty intent about watching what we're doing. And the next thing I know, he's out on the mats wanting to train with us. Now, I got selected by Ed Parker to be his, his dummy, his training partner. I mean, what else would you call somebody who just stands there and let you beat on them? Uh, other I, than think, I think the, the more disguising word is called your uki. <laughs> yeah, the we, we, we right. severed. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go with dummy. In any event, um, uh, it was obvious he didn't know the material. And uh, so I helped him out, you know, with, uh, with the stuff, showed him what to do, um, helped him with um, scoring points and doing the whole thing. In any event, uh, it all went pretty well. And at the end of the session, um, uh, he's standing there with Ed Parker and Ed calls me over and said, I want, um, I want you to show Elvis that special technique that you do all the time for demonstration purposes. And I went, uh, yeah, okay. So uh, I got a dummy and I did the technique. Now the technique is not practical. It doesn't work. It just demonstrates speed and, and power and agility. That's it. That's about the whole size of it. But it comprises uh, it, it's comprised of 13 different strikes. And in those days, I could do those 13 strikes in two seconds. Wow. Now, yeah, that's what we named the technique. Wow. <laughs> because that's what everybody said after I did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's 13 techniques and, and you said? 13 strikes. Okay. In two and, seconds. Wow. Again, uh, yeah, that's... It, it takes me it takes me two minutes nowadays, but <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, I learned later that Elvis was so impressed with that particular technique, the Wowie, that he right then and there decided that he wanted me to be part of his uh, security uh, apparatus, a member of the Memphis Mafia, and one of his personal bodyguards. And uh, two days later. Uh, I had a call from uh, Ed Parker saying that Elvis wanted to meet him and I out at his Beverly Hills home. And I said, nah, I don't want to go. I said, of course I want to go. Yeah, let's go. So we did. We went out there. We went into his house and we're all just sitting around and there weren't very many people there, but we were just, you know, enjoying each other's company, telling stories, talking about girls, you know, that kind of thing. And um, after about an hour, Elvis says, Dave, excuse me. We have a bit of a problem out in the, uh, in front of the house, in the, uh, in the driveway that we need to take care of. So if you'll excuse us, you know, we'll go take care of that one and uh, uh, just, just hang loose. We'll get back to you. 
So I said, okay, and I'm sitting there and a few minutes go by and the next thing I hear is Elvis going, Dave, come here, I need you. Now, I don't know what the hell is going on. You know, I mean, is there a problem? Is there some kind of a, you know, so I, I don't understand anyhow. So I go out there and there's all kind of, everybody's standing, everybody's standing, um, uh, surrounding this 1971 Mercedes 280 SL, beautiful car. And uh, I said, yeah, Elvis, uh, what's, uh, what's the problem? What can I help you with? And he said, it's this car. It's cluttering up my driveway. And I that want car, you to drive that it away kind of car, That kind of car? Yeah, it's a pretty beautiful car. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's cluttering up his driveway. He wants me to drive it away. So I said, sure. Where do you want me to drive it? And he says, anywhere you want. It's your car. And he handed me the keys and the paperwork uh, to the car. <laughs> yeah, wow. second, day, second day I met him, he gives me a Mercedes. So <laughs> I don't know what to say. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm tap dancing all over the place, trying to be grateful and whatever. And he, he finally just laughs and he said, enjoy your car, Dave. And they all went in the house and left me and Ed Parker to drive our respective cars wherever we wanted to drive them. And that was my second meeting with Elvis Presley. Jeez, oh, Pete, that's uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, Top that one. <laughs> I, I can't on that one at all. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. On a second, and and, and you basically over the duration of how much time did you did you know Elvis Presley? That how long were you? Uh, I, I was with him for uh, four years altogether. Okay. For four years as as a bodyguard, but yeah, did, as a bodyguard. Okay. Uh, first two years uh, was part-time and second two years was full-time. And it was a fun trip. <laughs> well, I, I did, I'll, I'll tell you, but my only Elvis Presley story that I have is I was at Arizona State, uh, my freshman year was 1976 and Elvis Presley was doing a concert at the uh, Arizona State University. And it, the huge activity center, I don't know, it holds something like that, I don't know, 15,000 people, something like that. Sellout crowd. And they were just looking for big football players, big amateur wrestlers, put on a security shirt and basically just, you know, say it no most of the time, you know, just to people and just to keep people back from squishing up the place. So, but it was, I saw more women's underwear being launched towards that's the stage than, than anything. I kept thinking, holy moly, what did they do? Have a sell down at Macy's or something like that? What's what's the deal here? <laughs> I I have stories about that, Dan. Well, <laughs> pol police, police, if, if uh, they're, like, they're not it. quite as interesting as some of the stuff that the crazy ladies did. Some of some of the stuff would uh, beyond belief what the what they would do, like. The, um, the two girls that mailed themselves to Elvis in a box. <laughs> it's Saturday. I mean, I was driving to, to Graceland one morning. I noticed a commotion at the gate and a television crew van just drive, drove away as I drove into the gate. And um, 
I'm kind of curious, you know, I, can, I don't know what's going on. So I asked Vester, the, the, the guard, I said, Vester, what's going on? He said, you see those two girls over there? I said, yeah. And there were these two young ladies. They were about 17, 18 years old. And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, um, they just mailed themselves to Elvis. <laughs> and of course, I brilliantly said, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, they mailed, they put themselves in a box and mailed themselves to Elvis. And I went, damn. So I called the girls over to the car and I said, um, and, and they got up and they were really shy and they're going, yes, sir. And I said, did you actually do that? They went, yes, sir. You put yourselves in a box, got it nailed shut and put into the postal service and mailed to Elvis? Is that what you did? They went, yes, sir. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we were disguised as dogs. And when the delivery was made, the office people refused to accept delivery. So uh, upon hearing that, they kicked themselves out of the box and the jig is up and they're caught. And uh, they're getting escorted down to the front and all that stuff. And meanwhile, somebody called the TV show, uh, station and they showed up. And of course, it was a, a big news. But in any event, to continue with the, continue with the story with the girls, I said, uh, do you, uh, I, I said, how much did it cost you to, to do that? And they said, $97. I went, holy shit. I said, listen, um, you still want to meet Elvis? And they went, yes, sir. I said, get in the car. So they do get in the car. And I drove around back up Graceland where I normally park. And uh, we, we went in the back door. And there was a hallway going down to um, one of Elvis's room called the Jungle Room. And we're walking down that hall. And Elvis is in the Jungle Room. And he's watching television. So I walked up with these two girls and said, hey, Elvis, guess what I got here? And he looked and he said, uh, two pretty little girls. And I said, yeah, you're never going to believe what they did. And he went, what did they do? I said, they put themselves in a box and mailed themselves to you. And Elvis, brilliantly, just like me, answered the same way. What? <laughs> you know, you did what? <laughs> And they went, oh, yes, sir. And they're kind of kind of shuffling around a little bit. Yeah, they're just cute little girls, you know. I mean, I mean but they did what like me, but they like shuffling like this, a little bit embarrassed by all this, or yeah, yeah. Anyhow, Elvis said the uh, same thing I said, why'd you do that? And they said, Well, we wanted to meet you and we couldn't think of another way to do it, so that's what we did. And he said, Oh my god, so. <laughs> He ended up giving them scarves and a kiss and everything. Then he looked at me and said, you know, get rid of this too. <laughs> so I, I walked him out and whatever. And that was the end of that episode. But it, it by far was not the most bizarre things that these women did. They're crazy. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I have a I, whole I, chapter in my book called The Crazy Ladies. Okay. That, that, that's just called The Crazy Ladies or is it? Is that? Yeah. The, the, yeah, my book is The Elvis Experience. It came out about three years ago. And I do all these vignettes in the book, you know, all these little stories of stuff that took place. You know, some of the stuff that happened at concerts that were insane. You know, the San Diego chicken, you know, all, 
Okay. And you're laughing at just uh, just the name. So lots of fun stuff that happened. You know. You said okay, this book just came out, The Elvis Experience. Yeah, three three years three years ago it came out. Where can people pick the pick up a copy if they would like to? Well, they can go to www.thedavehebler.com and buy a copy, an autograph copy. Or you can go to Amazon and buy one for 20 bucks, but it's not autographed. Understood. www.thedavehebler.com. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure that we have, because we'll definitely come back to that a couple of times, because so let's face it. The King, Elvis Presley, I mean, he uh, had quite the legacy for, again, quite a few years, uh, you know, should not have died when he, when he did pass on, who knows where he would have been at uh, today, but uh, uh, definitely made his mark in the, the music industry. Elvis Presley was the single greatest entertainer that ever lived, period. And nobody ever going to be another Elvis Presley. He was well, insane. We had this conversation, it. actually, Elvis and I. He was, uh, you know, he's, he knew he was insanely famous. Obviously, he knew. And, and, he, would, uh, and he said, you know, uh, why me? I said, what are you talking about? He said, why me? He says, all this fame and stuff. He said, I understand that. You know, I said, but I, what I don't understand is why me? I said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I just think that maybe you were put here um, and uh, to be as poppy as you are because you bring so much joy and happiness to so many people. Well, again, maybe the right place, right, right time. But, but I mean, the way, uh, you know, when he first started singing, there's a lot of like gospel type music and he, he had a great voice for all, a lot of these, these gospel tunes where I could see how easily he could, he could have won was, over many Americans just struck by that yeah, genre was, alone. That was his favorite music, gospel. Uh, but he was also practical and he also worked for the Colonel and that was practical. But, you know, I just said to him, look, Elvis, a hundred years from now, Nobody's going to know who I am, but everybody's going to know who you are. And here we are 50 years down the road. And this movie just came out. And this movie was a phenomenon that, called Elvis that basically has reintroduced millions and millions of young people to become fans. It's incredible. That's incredible. Again, I, I'm going to be a little bit uh, dumbbound here because I'm I'm not familiar with the movie that just came out. I, again, I so. yeah, it's called it's called Elvis. Okay, you said it just came out. Yeah, it's it's already sold three hundred million dollars worth of stuff. It's a huge, huge. Success. Oh, I, I again anything that has Elvis Presley's name attached to it, I can't. It's it's going to it's going to be golden. That's for sure. I mean, he's a uh, yeah. You know, definitely uh, uh, just a, a legend that uh, uh, legend mystique, uh, so many different things, are, especially at a very young age. I mean, he just had such charisma, that smile, the way that he could move and dance, and uh, he just had so many different elements to him. Yeah, my uh, oldest daughter saw it, she thought it was a great movie. Great uh, movie, it, she, she's a new Elvis fan. 
Yeah. He got rave reviews. It was just amazing, the turnout. What What are your thoughts on the movie? Do you think it was accurate, or you think there's some things that in there that show they made up or embellished on? Uh, you asking me? Yes, yes, sir. Uh, in the first place, I haven't seen the movie. But I've gotten inputs from literally hundreds of people whose opinion I respect. And uh, those opinions are of, uh, uh, of singular conclusion. First place, the movie visually was incredible. The acting was superb. The, 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 all of the, uh, the visually, it was really impactful. Uh, factually, it leaves a whole lot to be desired. And oh, um, there's a lot of people. Factually, what do you mean? They, they, they exploited a lot of things then? Pardon? Because when you, when you said factually, it has a lot to be desired. So it means that you, they kind of took a great liberties then with the movie? Or? Yeah, but, you know, they... Um, they, like, for instance, they made out the colonel to be really a bad guy. And uh, I knew the colonel pretty darn well. I spent a lot of time with him. And, I, 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 you know, it's my opinion that the colonel was not the bad guy. Not the bad guy that they portrayed in this movie in any event. Uh, and so, I mean, I write about the colonel in my book too and i talk about the episodes of of interplay that he and i had back and forth because he he liked to put me in terrible tricks <sighs> although i never worked for him well give us give us an example of just just one of those tricks or they, that he might have okay. tried to pull on you okay we we always would like kowtow to the colonel and we're in a dressing room in Las Vegas, and the dressing room was actually two dressing rooms. There was a dressing room for the public, you know, invited guests, and it had a bar in it. And then there was the private dressing room where Elvis was personally Elvis's room. And the colonel is messing with me. He's coming up to me and he's going, you know, wiggling his fingers in my face. And he's going, you are under the colonel's power. Uh, yes, sir, colonel. He <laughs> said, you can't do anything unless the colonel says you can. I said, yes, sir, colonel. He said, you cannot leave that chair unless the colonel says you can. I said, yes, sir, colonel. And the colonel goes away, and I'm still sitting on this bar stool. And the next thing I know, I hear Elvis from the next room and he goes, hey, Dave, come here, I need you. So I do this, I stand up and I pick up the chair with me. <laughs> and I duck walk into the room and sit down in front of Elvis and said, yeah, Elvis, what do you want? <laughs> and Elvis just started cracking up laughing at the Colonel and said, got you again, Colonel. Well, did I mean did Elvis hear like the the, the, the beginning portion of the uh, of the conversation? He was trying to put no, you. No, no, the colonel filled him in after a while. Oh, gosh, okay. Yeah, the colonel was also a degenerate gambler, um, which I later learned quite a bit about because I became a pit boss and a dealer in various casinos for about fifteen years around uh, Nevada. 
Yeah, again, I was going to say, was it was it was the casino that route they went? They go to pony races, or I just got curious as to what what type of what was his uh, uh, roulette. Element. He played roulette, which is roulette. the stupid. By the way, it's the stupidest game to play in any casino. Stupid. It is almost as bad as Keno. <laughs> the odds are so bad against you. <laughs> I'm making a notation on that one. So, say, so what's the best game to play then? Uh, okay, if if you can uh, follow it, craps. Other than that, would be uh, twenty-one if you're playing a singleton against a dealer, because the odds are odds are true. Okay, if I'm playing, and I'm a great twenty-one player, by the way, because I'm a great twenty-one dealer. But you, but you said only, only if you're playing one on one with against the dealer. One on one, because the because problem is one on one. If if you get in your hands, uh, so let's say you're betting a five dollar minimum, uh, you're going to make about a hundred dollars an hour. However, and the odds are one point six percent against you, because you're going to break before the dealer breaks. That's the odds. The odds go to 17% against you as a player until as soon as another player joins the, the mix because they're inept. They don't know what they're doing. They make mistakes that cost not only them money, but the, you as well. And that goes all the way to 17% because that's the hold industry-wide for 21, last I heard. I don't want to buck 17% odds. That's crazy. So my short answer was I make all my money on video poker. Okay. Again, that, those, you don't those, have those enough, huge, you don't have enough time casinos. to listen to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that, that's huge at all of these casinos and stuff, the video poker that. So yeah. But no, I mean I just again yeah, that's just a little side genre that uh <laughs> you know, so it's always good to let folks know because I, I always tell people that you know Las Vegas does not exist. Las Vegas, Reno, Atlantic City, these these major gambling hubs do not exist because uh, everyone's winning. Uh, you're most people are making their contributions to these various establishments, but then there are are people that they really do know what they're doing, and uh, a lot of times they uh, get banned at various. You can, that because you get you get too good and uh no no you can make a little money if you know what you're doing but nobody ever broke the bank nobody ever and never will that'll never happen but you got to know when to you know that old song you got you never count your money till the deal is done yeah gotta know when, know when to fold them no one to walk away that's yep. a bunch of bullshit you better know what your money is and you better know what your money is every single minute you're on a game because it's always the money. Mr. Fry, let me break you in on that note there. Mr. Fry, does, yes, does Dan does ever know where his money's at? Every second of the day, boy. <laughs> you got it. It was, it was, uh, I, I apologize about that with their day, but it was just, it was just too good of a moment to let pass right there. Cause that, no, was, that was perfect. He knows. 
Married on the mayonnaise jar down the yard. <laughs> Wait, don't be saying that there, on the air there, Don. Come on now. I'm digging dig in my boy. yard here big, now. Big mayonnaise jar. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Your book, The Elvis Experience, just three years ago, www.addavehebler.com. People can pick up a copy of that. And basically, for four years of uh, your life, uh, being part-time, and then two two years of being full-time, when you, uh, okay, what is, okay, tell me, explain me a little bit, what is what is part-time mean and what is full-time? I mean, I understand full-time just means 24 hours a day, I would think, but again, you explain, explain it to me, the difference between part-time and full-time, what that meant. Well, when I was part-time, I was still running my karate school in uh, Glendora. Uh, and I would only go on gigs. In other words, I wouldn't be around all of us, you know, 24-7, seven days a week, you know, that kind of thing. I would be running my school. And then when they had a gig, they'd call, I'd go, you know, go to the gig, like go to Lake Tahoe and stay there for three, four days with the engagement that they're doing then. And then um, two years down the road, he... Um, uh, you know, he just come on out and said, you know, I want you to work for me full time. Uh, and I said, yeah, mainly because I had just gotten divorced and I figured out a great way to meet women. And it was. Well, yeah, probably because you were probably, if you're, if you're in, in, in the same proximity of Elvis, you're probably being pelted with panties on a regular basis. Yeah, I know. Think about this. Think about this now, Dan. <laughs> Everywhere we went, there were hundreds of love-starved women just doing their best to try to get next to Elvis and love him to death. And it was my job to keep them from doing that. <laughs> what a crummy job for a guy, right? Well, I, mean, I tell you what, that, what, what, a, what a tough job to put yourself well, in between let me tell you, Let like me that. tell you how tough it was. <laughs> I often had to sacrifice my own body just to save his. Hmm. Tough job, yeah. right? I, I, I think. Oh, no, I Shut up, Jeff. I, I didn't want to insult you very much, you know, very much. Um, <laughs> how, how, difficult, how difficult of a job could it have been to protect Elvis Presley? One, it's only women attacking him. Two, who, who wanted to harm the guy? The guy was loved. It's like it's like uh, attacking Jesus Christ, you know, almost. Yeah, it was rare that he got a. Um, um, we had a problem with guys. That yeah. was pretty rare. Uh, mostly bro, women. <laughs> but it was an occasional guy. Got out of line. Got jealous because his girlfriend or his wife was being a little too flirtatious with Elvis the King. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, no, that again, that was so comical that uh, go. Let's go back to, to the karate school for a moment there, because you said yeah. he was. Because I, 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 you know, I've read different things about Elvis over the years that he actually had a, a karate background. Was that at your school that uh, that yeah. he, he he learned this? And and what kind of did he ever achieve like a, a belt level status or? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that Elvis. Uh, was a, uh, a martial artist and a martial arts supporter his entire adult life. 
his entire adult life. True story. Um, he, of course, could not train like you and I could train. Yeah, of course. It, I mean, everywhere we went, it was pandemonium. It just couldn't happen. The time I spent with him, I actually gave him more lessons than anybody. But they were like little simple things, little simple moves, you know, punches, moves, that kind of thing, which he liked. He enjoyed doing that. But he, uh, he received some pretty high rank from some pretty legitimate high-ranking martial arts instructors. And I'm not one of them. I never promoted him to anything. But uh, so people are always asking, was he, was he justifiably, you know, an eighth degree black belt or a ninth degree black belt? And I said, it depends on your perspective. You know, uh, the amount of publicity and goodwill that Elvis gave to the martial art world is pretty equivalent to what Bruce Lee did for the martial art world in, in terms of popularizing and supporting, you know, those activities. So from that perspective, we owe Elvis Presley a, a debt of gratitude for that. Mm -hmm. But as far as him being as good as uh, Bill Wallace, that's, that's fanciful. It, it couldn't happen. And Elvis and I had that conversation too. Because he, um, he was getting a little feisty. And he said, you know, the guys would like to see a couple high-ranking black belts get it on. And I said, are you talking about me and you? And he said, uh, yeah, the guys would like to see that. And I said, you talking about me and you, you know, getting it on? Are we going to go out and you're going to sing a song and I'm going to sing a song and uh, let the audience decide who's the better singer? Or are we going to get together and fight and see who's the better fighter? I said, look, I have as much pride in my skill sets and in my profession as you do in yours. Mm -hmm. I, I would never insult you by claiming that I was as good a, uh, a uh, entertainer and singer as you are, because that's not true. But don't push me in a corner with that. That's, that's not right. No. You know, that's yeah, all. I mean, there's there's just, so just many idiots out there. So many idiots out there in the uh, entertainment world who who uh, think that you know, hey, I made a karate movie, so I'm I'm really the karate master. You there know? you go. Not, you know, they're just fucking stupid. You know, yeah. Uh, take, uh, that, uh, take that, take that, take that shit to the gym. You know, what I mean, I could have fought the UFC at this. I could have fought at this. No, if you wanted to fight in a UFC, you'd have fucking signed your name to it because it's all yeah. about competition. You yep. know, it's about, That's about right. the love and competition. Yep, you got it. So I told Elvis uh, to, to finish up the story. I said, Elvis, you're the greatest entertainer that ever lived. You are not the greatest martial artist who ever lived. Right. Yeah. No, there's, uh, again, the, 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 you, you can hit the nail on the head. A lot of people, they, uh, there's different honorary type of degrees that uh, different universities will bestow upon different individuals, but same way that uh, in the martial arts world that uh, they'll give somebody a rank for something. I mean, even in my own uh, athletic background, 
I jumped into, I only ever took one judo class at Arizona State University. And yet, uh, you know, here I am at, at the, when this class is over, I'm, I'm you know, the, the, uh, the, I had two different instructors, an American instructor and an Asian instructor. And the American instructor kind of took a shine to me because he saw, uh, you know, how I actually came to some of the home duel matches. They saw how I was incorporating some judo into yeah. my amateur wrestling matches. And then yeah. uh, he basically said, hey, Dan, how would you like to go and watch a, a judo tournament? I had never been to a judo tournament before. I go, sure, what do I do? And he says, jump in this van. So I jumped in that van, gets me down to, I think, Tucson, Arizona, something like that. And this guy, like, this story is like, well, now that you're here, he goes, how would you like to compete? And I'm like, well, I don't have a gi or nothing like that. It's like, ta-da, he had the gi, he had everything. But and, and, uh, <laughs> it was basically, it was a setup. Yeah, and I and I look like the biggest barbarian in the world because I did not know all the the proper etiquettes of bowing before he walked onto the mat. You know, you walk up to this line yeah, and you bow yeah. to this side judge, that side judge, yeah. the center judge, and then then they then, then the center judge says Haji May, and I think Haji who, and here he comes. I go, well, I guess it's time to <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, it's what's interesting about all of that is. Uh, People kind of fantasize about this person and that person's rank and this high mucky muck over here and this high title person over here and that kind of thing. And they, they, they venture off into, uh, you know, uh, fantasy land or whatever it is that they go. Because the, the actual truth of the matter is, is that I have been a self-defense instructor and a martial artist for 64 years. Wow. Nice. In the Kempo world, I am a 10th degree black belt and I am the second most senior black belt in the world. Now, having said all of that, there ain't no way in hell I would want to fight me as I was 64 years ago. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Because my first degree black belt will kick my 10th degree black belt's ass all over the hell and back. That's the truth of the matter is. They think as you get older, you get better. Uh-uh. No, you don't. <laughs> you just get older, dude. <laughs> Elvis, Elvis, Elvis is smart enough to carry a gun too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I go, I couldn't help but want to jump in and go, uh, Grasshopper, you are so wise in the knowledge that you have learned over the years. <laughs> but that's a different matter. Yes. I can show you stuff that I can watch you move and show you stuff that's going to help you to move better and more efficiently. For sure. No two ways about it. I can do that. Yes. But that don't make you... <laughs> any better unless you number one train and number two actually get in the ring with somebody that wants to kick your ass because reality is reality i mean i'm a martial artist i'm also a big admirer of boxers i knew rocky marciano i did when i was a child so I've been around boxers all the time. And I'll tell you right now, a good boxer will kick ass on about 97% of all the black belts in the world. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, because they 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 get punched for real. That's you know? right. And and uh, most of most of the black belts more says this kata, you know, and and no, you got to put that stuff to test. You know, you got to yeah. really put it into action. Yeah, it's 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 okay if you want to. If you want to study the martial arts to learn katas and forms and how to move with grace and agility and style and all of that kind of, if that's what you want to do, that's perfectly okay. But don't bullshit, bullshit yourself into thinking that because you know how to do that and you do it well, that you can actually fight. Because that's a, totally that's a totally different animal. Yeah. Once you get punched in the nose, you know, it changes your whole perspective of yeah. the fight world. Yeah, I love Mike Tyson saying, you know, everybody has a plan till you punch him in the face. <laughs> Shit, that was back. That was Rocky Marciano. I guess George Foreman said that before his fight with Ali, you know, and uh, Rocky Marciano said that before his fight. You know, I mean, that that, that city's been around forever. Yeah, but Tyson... Tyson has got uh, credit for it because uh, nobody does their history anymore, you know? But that, that yeah. saying has been around forever. Yeah. Yeah, that was my um, that was my upbringing when I was a little kid. I was a peewee fighter in, the, in uh, my hometown, a little recreation thing. And Rocky, Rocky Marciano's training camp was only like about 25 miles from where my hometown was and Rocky and some of the other fighters used to come to help us little peewees, you know, give us big old boxing gloves and give us tips and everything. That was, it was great. You know, Willie Pep, Sandy Sadler, you know, people yeah, like that. Yeah. Those guys were great. That's your thinking. Huh? Yeah. Um, oh God. The, uh, the mongoose. Um, God damn, can't even think of his name now. Um, Archie Moore, Archie Moore, a great fighter, Archie Moore. Oh, yeah. You know, Joe Lewis, you know, those guys are phenomenal. And and you say those names to people nowadays, and they just, you're like, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah Didn't Joe Lewis have a title they... fight every month for about two years? Yeah, they call it a bum of the month club. Bum yeah. of the month, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to inject that on the part that the down to say about that. You know, no one knows our history. All they know is about who's the latest on social media that's uh, tweeting out like, and that's like Jake Paul here right now. He's he's uh, he's a uh, a social media you know uh, person that's just, just you know, but he's got he's got to have a, a legitimate boxing background because he keeps challenging a lot of these uh, MMA fighters to boxing fights and uh, and he keeps winning them. So. You know, the proof is in the pudding. He is winning them, but uh, the way he fighting, goes about it, kind of goes. Boxers. He's not fighting boxers, though, Dan. He's fighting no, no, he, washed up people that shouldn't, that are never, they were never boxers to begin with. Yeah, no, Tony, I, I, I totally agree with, with, with what and you're saying right his, there. And out of his weight class, like, you know, he's going against people that they're not heavyweights, you know? I mean, <laughs> well, it, the, the sad part is they're all being lured by the almighty dollar. Because Deborah, you'd be there, you'd be there in a New York minute, boy. <laughs> yeah, Don, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. See, this is where you, yes, you know, you know, you, you know, your dad, your dad's over here pretty well right there, but it's kind of going, if that was the truth, I would still be working with Vince McMahon with 
666 across my forehead. Mark of the beast instead of being known as the beast because they're offering me some pretty good money to do that. And I turned that one down. So I might have had a fever. I don't know at that time they're not, but you know, yeah, you it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave, tell them a little about your first book. I think people oh. love that. The Elvis His book? first book was a huge bestseller. One of the biggest selling books of all times. Yeah, it was. It was um, actually the truth of the matter is, is that, uh, and I could talk for hours about that book, by the way. And uh, well, okay, what was your first book? Okay, it was your first. What was it about? It was called Elvis. What happened? And it was written by uh, Red West, Sunny West, and me. And we were fired uh, about one year before Elvis died. And there's a whole other story, you know, behind that firing stuff. I talk about it in my in my book. Okay, so that's in book number three. That's just the title alone. Elvis, what happened? So yeah, yeah. It it uh, the way I personally feel about the book then. And the way I feel about that book today is uh, I, when it first came out, I thought it was a piece of crap. Now that I, uh, now that I've got, uh, you know, 50 years behind it, I still think it's crap. I hated it. I hated it then. And I hate it now. Because if you read the cover of that book and the back cover of the book, you're going to read words that are really sensational and they're really nasty uh, and they're really controversial. And then you need to understand that those were not our words. We didn't say those things. The publisher said those words. The writer that the publisher that worked for the publisher, he said those words. They sensationalized everything because that book was written. Elvis was still alive. Okay. The, um, and it became, it sold anywhere from, I don't know, 3 million to 10 million or some, some ridiculous amount. And people think that, and I still get shit about it today. Um, well, you wrote another book, what, you spend all those millions of dollars you made on that first book? Well, I wish that were true. But the truth of the matter is I made 1.6 cents per book, less than two pennies. That's the truth. Okay. Wow. The, the amount of hate mail that we received, and I still receive to this day, uh, to give you an idea, after the book, a couple of weeks after the book came out, Elvis died. Then the second first edition came out and the, the world went crazy. So a few weeks after that, I get a call from the publishers who mostly just ignored us. They, you know, they didn't want to listen to anything we had to say. So they said, uh, we got all this mail. Do you want it? I said, how much mail do you have? They said, 40,000 letters. I said, 40,000 letters? What are they all about? I said, oh, they're all hate mail. 
I said, what the hell makes you think that I would want to read 40,000 letters telling me that I'm the son of the devil? I don't want to hear that shit. No, of course not. You know, whatever. Well, people uh, have the wrong idea of why we d decided to do that book. But in my new book, I give the three reasons why. This is why we did it. This is why I got involved with that book. But to say that um, I like that book in any way is a total exaggeration because it's not. I hated it. That's all I got to say about that book. <laughs> what, what, what's your favorite um, Elvis song? Uh, trilogy. I saw Elvis perform that song. Think about Elvis, the reason why he was so great. If you listen to a record today uh, on a radio, TV, whatever, whatever, whatever recording you listen to, you have to understand all of that stuff is tweaked. They have engineers who massage the sound so it sounds better. They, they fix the highs and they fix the lows and they do all of that kind of stuff in the studio. So the end result is something that's really professional. Elvis Presley was a finished product in person. He sounded better than the recordings. It was just amazing how good he actually was. And what astounded me about Elvis is that up until the first time I saw him perform, I was not a fan. I mean, I was a fan of Fast Domino and Chuck Berry and people like that. In fact, I got to meet them, which is great. And in any event, the first time I saw Elvis actually perform in person in front of a crowd, I was stunned because I have never seen anybody in my limited, you know, knowledge at the time, of, uh, who was that good? And he was that good when he died. He was truly a phenomenon. Yeah, again, going back to that 1976 experience, he was uh, he was there at, at Tempe, Arizona, and uh, conducted this, this concert. I mean, so but he I. was, and, and he had a, uh, I think it was a, a like a white jumpsuit on at the time, and, and I mean he was he was sweating up a storm. I mean, just he's been out there sort of moving, yep. but he was still sweating up a storm. Yeah, I was yeah. there. I remember Tempe. Yeah, that Great was. Uh, yeah, it, well, again, that was the uh, what, what was known as the activity center. Now it's been that same building, but it just had. Is that still? Had, uh, Still up that building. That, that building still exists. Yeah, so it's gone through several different name changes over over the years, but uh, it's uh, still hosts a lot of uh, basketball uh, games that, that take place there. But uh, no, it was a it was a practically a brand new facility when I I think it's only been open for a couple of years before I, I I attended there in 1976. So I'm, I'm curious here. Okay. Uh, Dave, you, you talked about, you said the jungle room. I, I, I go, I, I wrote this down because I think I got to come back to Dave here at some point in time and ask him about the jungle room. Because you said that there were so many things that happened in the jungle room. 
Yeah, the jungle room, it was just a, like a living room, but it was the furniture and all this raggedy edged furniture in it, all solid wood. The, the walls were covered in carpet. And the, the, the reason, that was the reason why he did uh, some recordings there in that room, because the room- Kind of like, almost like soundproof a little bit. Yeah, it was soundproof. They would park the RCA Victor truck outside and um, um, outside the window, and then Elvis would record inside along with the band and everything. It worked out well. And this was right, right there at his home, his home, you said? Pardon? This was right there at his home, you said? Yeah, at, a, at Graceland. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Your karate school, you said that, that was located, it, it was, was it California at that same time? You're still California? Yeah, at Glendora, California. I mean, how long did you keep, keep that for before you, you know, started doing uh, other things? I ran that school along with my partner, Jim Thompson, for a little over 10 years. Yeah, we yeah, had I mean, for a long time. We were partners for 10 years on a handshake. Yeah, try to find that nowadays. You got to put yeah, that no, no way. triplicate uh, uh, contracts. And, and even then, it's like, how good is your lawyer at that point? So, yeah, that, that's the sad part. That's where there was a time when a handshake and your word actually meant something. And uh, nowadays, it's oof. Yeah, I worked for New Japan Rock Pro Wrestling first two years on a handshake. It was great, you know. Mm. And then the lawyers got involved. <laughs> Fucked it all up. Yeah, the, the Japanese are really good there about uh, what, what they talk about. They, they usually come right through on to as well. So great experiences with, with them. Two books, Dave Hepler, two books out. The first book. Actually, Elvis. Okay, Elvis, what happened? And then the book number two, The Elvis Experience that just came out three years ago. And I just finished a, a women's self-defense training manual called Encounters of the Worst Kind. Encounters of the Worst Kind. Yeah. It's designed for uh, women and young ladies um, who have never had any training whatsoever. So it's very, very basic. But a lot of information in it that's quite valuable because the ignorance of most young ladies today is pretty astounding. They don't know. I mean, they, they just don't know. It's not that they're stupid. They just don't have, have not been educated. But the book was, um, uh, I was motivated to write this, this manual, and it's the, the fourth one. Over a 50-year period of time, I've written these manuals. This most recent one is my last effort. I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, when you realize that in this country today, there are 10 million women and young ladies who are violently assaulted physically every year. And the vast majority of those young ladies are young ladies, they're young girls. Their ages are 11 to 19. 
and they're victimized at a rate 74, 76% higher than the general population. So you want to talk about an epidemic? There you go. There's one right there. But you know, women, it's, it's hard to get women to train because they don't even want to think about the subject, never mind do anything about it. So uh, I have the manual on my website. It's for sale for 50 bucks. It's, a, it's an entire six week course of instruction. It's pretty cool. A lot of good information in it, you know, and I can't hardly sell one. So what I'm doing is I give it away. If you buy one on my site, that's fine. But if you buy anything else on my site, I will give you a copy of that training manual for free. Wow. And the way I do it is uh, I'll shoot you an email and I will attach the manual, a digital copy of the manual to the email. Yeah. So that you in turn can forward that email on to any female that you think might get some good out of the material and they get it for free and they can do the same thing. So I want to propagate it as much as I can because it's been a, prep, a pet project of mine, you know, for 50 years. I'd like to see, I'd like to see more, more ladies get, uh, get educated, you know, thing. and, um, even you, if you say that, 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 that is called women encounters of the worst kind. Yeah. It's called how to survive encounters of the worst kind. Okay. How to survive encounters of the worst kind. And again, about, that, that is at uh, www.davehebler.com yeah. or, or, or is it the Dave Hebler? Because I had, I haven't yeah. ever down. The Dave Hebler. Okay, www.thedavehebler.com. Gotcha. Yeah, the and if you Dave. go on there, if you buy a picture, like an autograph picture, mm -hmm. it costs you twenty bucks. I will give you the, the the anything you buy on there. I will give you a copy of that manual. Oh, that's again. That, that's uh, yeah. That's what they, I do love about the martial arts is like the martial arts, especially when it comes to kids. Uh, young people in general is it's the last frontier where students are learning true character traits about honor, respect, you know, words that, I mean, you go to our school systems today and you got students that are threatening their teachers and, no and, and, and they're telling the teacher that if you touch me, my parents will sue you and stuff like this. I'm thinking, what what has happened to this world? I mean, it was, uh, I, I remember going to uh, classes and having the, uh, the Board of Education proudly on display, the paddle. And if you got out of line, oh, that teacher had no problem lightning you lighting you right up you know three four swats and, and, and that uh you know corporal punishment to me it's like and now today there is no there is nothing for what the, what these kids say and or do you know, there's no repercussions yeah no, I, I, no consequences i mean look at the the idiots that are getting away with the, the flash mobs uh uh, flash mob thefts now you know the, that asshole in new york sucker punched that guy put him in a coma 
You know, I mean, you got dirt bags all over the place and they're being treated like heroes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they don't get arrested. And if they do get arrested, they get let loose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I'm almost 85 years old. No way. I, I have, yeah. Really? I have never seen anything like this at all. You can, t I'll tell you what, you try to teach that woke bullshit to one of my kids and I will mess you up. <laughs> no, wicked. You, I, I, I would have never, I would have never, I would have never thought that you're 85 years old, uh, Dave. I mean, you're, yeah, you're no you're, one you're, does. I'm pretty healthy, actually. No, you're, you're healthy. You're very sharp. You're, you're, you got a great wit about you there. I mean, the fact that you're still writing books at the end of the day, most people, they hit a certain age and uh, it's kind of like they just start sitting around and, uh, you know, become something that, that dust starts to sell. Uh, you, you look like you're taking care of yourself too. And that's the point. Well, if you don't use it, you're gonna lose it. Well, yeah, no, I mean, you, you well, again, it's people like you that it's, it's people like you that that inspire me to continue moving forward. It's uh, it the because again, you know, the, I'll say on a sad note, both of my parents are gone, and one yeah. went at seventy three, one is one is seventy five. So you know, when I hit sixty four, it's kind of like going, gee, what does that mean? I have because usually you are a product of your parents because they are what made up your genes and things of that nature. So you yeah. start to think, gosh. What does that mean right now? Do I have 12, you know, 10 years left? Do I have, uh, do I have, uh, you know, eight years left? No, that's, that's not satisfactory to me. That's why I kindly, I always say that uh, I plan on taking father time into overtime for a couple, <laughs> couple rounds. We're going to tussle a little bit in that overtime. Yeah. So, but no, right. you're, well, what, what, what preoccupies your time now? Well, I, um, I do a lot of Elvis stuff uh, because there ain't no jobs for 85 year old guys named Dave, especially if you want to stay independent. And that's exactly what I want to do. I live by myself, my own apartment. I do my own cooking. I do my own cleaning. I do my own errands. I do everything. Uh, I don't want to be beholden to somebody else. I don't want to live with my children. Uh, I want to stay independent until the day I die. So to keep busy, I do things that interest me, uh, you know, like talking to you and, uh, you know, uh, fooling with my books. And uh, I do Elvis appearances quite, uh, quite often. Uh, I just got a week, for example. Pardon? All last week, for example. Yeah, all last week I was in Memphis. And I'm invited to do a 30-day tour in Europe next spring. When you, when you do like an Elvis, when you say you, you, you're doing these uh, Elvis tour, is this like the Q&A uh, storytelling and uh, people can ask questions? and uh... Yeah, the way, we, the way we do it is uh, I go with a band. Uh, an ETA band. Okay. And uh, we have a producer who's great. I mean, he he's the best in Europe. He really is. And um, what happens is I come out and I open the show. And the way I open the show is, uh, you know, I tell them, um, you know, I get introduced and they know who I am anyhow. 
And then I tell them uh, about a 12 minute story about Elvis, the person, what it was really like. Then I turn the show over and the band takes over and the singing and all that. And they all do, do, do their thing. Uh, and at the end of the show, uh, we have a meet and a greet. So um, basically we'll set up a table and we'll have me and like Dwight Eisenhower, who is the ET guy and the drummer uh, and the guitar player. And we, also, and we meet the fans and we sell, you know, autograph copies of our pictures and autograph copies of our DVDs or whatever we may happen to be, happen to have. And we spend about, uh, you know, maybe a half hour doing that. And then we get out of Dodge and head out to the to the next venue to where we're going to go, and uh, that that re repeat over and over again for thirty days, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, but but, but doing all this, admittedly, is there any like a little Elvis music that that plays here, like a little bit of, a little bit of this song or a little bit of that song, just so that people get the, you know that uh, you know I guess that ambiance. I'm looking for the word ambiance there. So, you know, you're talking Elvis and you're talking much stories. It's much bigger in Europe. The audience, every audience we go to is all sold out, number one. And when they start doing an Elvis song, everybody in the audience sings along with them. They know every word to every song. They know everything about you, or at least they think they do. <laughs> and they they want to know more. They want the secrets to the universe. That, that's one of the funny things that uh, Don, Don Fry will probably acknowledge the same aspect, you know, because he's been to Japan a lot of times. I've been to Japan a lot of times. And you go to these karaoke singing and things karaoke, yeah. and, and I mean, these these Japanese people, they really, they can't speak a lick of English, nope. but yet they could sing this entire song. And if you just close your eyes, you would actually think that the, the real performer was up there performing because they hit all the vowels and, and sounds so perfectly. And then you realize when you have a conversation afterwards, they're right back to speaking their language once again, but it's, just, I know. it's marvelous. The Mavis, isn't it? Yes. And I love Europe anyhow, the people there are great. What, what, what particular part of Europe are you head to? Pardon? What particular area of Europe are you head to? Because I mean- uh, We usually do like, um, Norway, uh, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, okay. uh, and um, the Netherlands, Holland. That place is amazing. The Holland? Oh, I tell you, especially. <laughs> the last time I was in Amsterdam. Holy oh. shit. Oh, okay. See, see, those just say word like Amsterdam. I've taken lots of uh, stories I've heard about Amsterdam here well, right now. So the other day in Amsterdam, you don't hear about as much, but I'll I know at least two clubs in Amsterdam that are 100% shrines to Elvis. And I know of two other clubs that are 100% shrines to Buddy Holly. Yep. They love American... 50s rock. Rock and roll. Yeah. You betcha. Good old fashioned rock and roll. Still, I, I tell you roll what, soothes the soul. Yeah. I tell you what, Dan, if I were 18 years old again and I knew about Amsterdam, 
I'd be there in a heartbeat. <laughs> we, we may never have heard from you. <laughs> well, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Dave, if you, if you do Finland this spring, you may very well get the pr prime minister of the country there. She have, she is. Have you beautiful. seen her? She's a rock and roll chick. Yep. She's beautiful. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the most forward woman, women in the world live in Finland. And I was warned about it. First time I went over there about 10 years ago, this guy says, look, you got to be real careful because these women here are like really, really forward. And I went, yeah, right. You know, Carl. I, oh, well, I never, I, I never saw it. It was incredible. <laughs> never, never mind. What were you doing in Memphis last week, partner? Uh, every year they have Elvis week during the week that Elvis died, the week of the 16th, yeah. the week prior to is called the Elvis week. And that's where they have all of these ETAs, all these people come and, you know, they meet all of the people and, uh, you know, they spend money like it's going out of style. It's, it's insanity. Like right now, if you wanted to go next year to Elvis week, you're going to have to get a hotel room in Mississippi because there ain't no hotel rooms available. And they're not. It's, it's, you cannot, I'm telling you, when I talk about, I cannot come up with enough words to really convey what an insanity, what an amazing, incredible situation it actually is. But once you go there, and you know, like when they have the candlelight vision uh, uh, on the 16th, which is the actual anniversary of his death, they close off all the streets. The police close the streets off. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it's just astounding. So how many people you would say show up to this event? How many people? Yeah. Oh, I, I have no idea. Lots. They, 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 they were everywhere. I, I, I sat for um, from six o'clock, I mean, excuse me, from 10 o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the evening at uh, the Elvis Pawn Shop. I did that for five days. And there was just one line of people after another all day long coming through there, looking at all the stuff, buying our stuff, saying hi, getting pictures, doing all that kind of thing. Uh, I actually had an idea this year. So prior to the event, about four months, I, I, rented, a, um, I rented a room at a, um, at a hotel about 10 miles from uh, downtown uh, Memphis. And I produced my own show because I could get the room for like 200 bucks. I bought some souvenirs for another hundred bucks and I had 30 people show up and pay me $50 a piece to listen to me for a couple hours and buy all my stuff. 
<laughs> now, all right. Now, are you responsible for Elvis taking the gun to the White House? Pardon? Are you the one responsible for Elvis taking the gun to the White House? Uh, no. Elvis <laughs> never went anywhere without a gun. Yeah. Or I mean, two yeah. or three of them. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, he's a, he was a pro Second Amendment man. But I mean, to walk into the White House with a gun, oh, that's just Elvis. How, how cool is that? Now, that's, that is some stroke. I tell you what, we're having breakfast. He was having breakfast at the Hilton and the, um, um, at the penthouse. And I was sitting and he was on a couch and he had enough food for 20 people. But I was sitting on the edge of the couch and he's sitting right to my left. And the TV is on and Elvis is eating his breakfast and I was standing there. And all of a sudden on TV, the actor Robert Goulet came on. Yeah. And Elvis reached down between the cushions of the seat, pulled up a gun and went bam, bam, and shot the TV twice. I was about 20 feet away, you know, running for my life. I don't know what the hell that was. And I ran, bam, wow, damn, Elvis. And Elvis said, well, that'll be about enough of that shit. And put the gun back down and kept started eating. I, I take it he was so not a fan the, of I got uh, on the, Robert Goulet there, huh? Uh, yeah, Robert Goulet. So I got yeah. on the I got on the phone and I called the manager and identified myself and I said, You got a TV, TV set <laughs> up here that just died a violent death. So we need a new one up here like pretty soon, okay? I mean, it wasn't more than 15 minutes and we had a new brand new TV up there and they hauled the other, I don't know, I guess they gave it a burial or something. I don't know what they did. <laughs> but he would do shit like that all the time and nobody ever called him on it, ever. Wow. I saw him shoot, try to shoot the can off a car driving into Memphis. Yeah, of course he missed. But that bullet went whatever. There was all kinds of fans just standing around in cars and all kind of crap everywhere. Wow. We were in that limo with the moonroof. And I was driving the damn mill. And I saw the can sitting on top of the car as we're trying to get through this gate, waiting for the gates to open so we can go in. And I went, oh, no. Sure enough, Elvis stood up and bam, he blasted away at that can. Of course, he missed it. Now, but nobody big, said how anything. Big a, how big a man was Elvis? He was about 5'11", 6 foot. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. He's he and I could boy, wear huh? the same clothes at the time. Huh? He and I could wear the same clothes at the time. Wow. So would you wear some of those white jumpsuits out? At times, you know, but he but he offered ten of them to me. Just think with I, with, with I, just I'd think with those things with fetch at an auction today, you know. Yeah, go ahead, take a guess. Oh, I I wouldn't begin to guess. Start, start at a million dollars. Start at a million. Holy moly! Yeah, it'll bring tears to Severn's eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. 
Dave, is your car still in the museum in Vegas? Yeah. No, yeah. it's in um, at the it's at Graceland. Oh, it is. Oh. Yeah. The Lincoln. Okay. Are you talking about the, Are you talking about the, the the car that Elvis gave him? Yeah. When I first met him, he was actually driving it, and I've ridden in it before. Mm -hmm. And it was a car that Elvis gave him that then went to a museum in Vegas, right? And now it's in Graceland. That car's had a bit of a history of its own. Yeah, I tell a whole story about that car. That Lincoln. It was a very cool car. Yeah, because there was funny shit that happened with that with that car. But basically what happened is I drove that car for 20 years. I put a quarter million miles on it. I sold it to a guy that owned an Elvis museum in Las Vegas. He also owned, uh, was the manager of, uh, of uh, Hot Boat Magazine. So he had mechanics and people that worked on boats and stuff that were available to him. So the car, I had blown, blown something on the engine. Either. So he's going to repair the engine, which he does. And when they light, the, uh, when they fire up the engine, it all lights on fire. So now they put the fire out. Now they got to re they really got to restore it, you know, right? So the car originally was silver, as you might recall, Jeff. I do recall it as silver. Yeah. And uh, this guy hated the color silver, and he knew my favorite color was purple. So he painted it purple. The interior was that red velour stuff, you know, they find at whorehouses or whatever. <laughs> And uh, he thought that was really tacky. So he replaced that with white leather with purple piping on it. Now that car today sits at Graceland and you can go see it. Wow. It's the purple Lincoln. <laughs> if you go there, go say hi to my car. But it was one of the, but it was one of the few Elvis gift cards cars that actually had paperwork signed by Elvis. It, it was, yeah, the original paperwork was in Elvis's name. Yeah. And when Elvis found out about that two days later, he told his father, "No, no, 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 that's Dave's card. Give him the paperwork, you know, so that he can and sign off the paperwork so he can go and." put it in his name. And that's what happened. So I'm driving, driving the car back and I get stopped by a highway patrolman in Oklahoma City, runs the license plate on the car and the license plate comes back Elvis Presley. Now the highway patrolman sees that I'm not Elvis Presley. So obviously I'm stealing this damn car. Oh, yes, you're not Elvis. Yeah. He pulls he pulls me over. He's got me up. It's good. I mean, all kind of. I'm trying to explain to the guy, you know, right? And he ain't buying it. Yeah, right. You're Elvis Presley's bodyguard. Yeah, he gave me the car. Yeah, bullshit. You know, right? And I'm going, no, man. Listen, do you have a sergeant by the name of Sugar Smith? That you know of, and he says, "Yeah, I know sugar." And I said, "Give him a call, will you, please?" And tell him, just give him my name. Guy said, "All right," and he did. And sure enough, sugar says, "Yeah, he's the right guy. It's it's right. It it's cool. Let him go." And, and you did some. Had you done some work with the law enforcement at that point? That's how you knew him. Every time we went on tour, we would hire three or four 
local police officers, the real deal. Uh-huh. Okay. Because, I mean, to help out with security, for two reasons. One, they knew where everything was, all the good joints, all the good restaurants, all that good stuff. And they had arrest powers because they were real police. Yes, I gotcha. Except for San Diego. San Diego. <laughs> okay, you I got, I got a question for now because I mean the way that you you, you say this, what what happened to San Diego? <laughs> you can't leave that hanging now. Yeah, I gotta say you oh, can't. Oh, jeez. All right, I'm gonna tell you. Uh, I'm gonna conflate two gigs in San and uh, in San Diego. First place, the police back then were not allowed to moonlight in San Diego, so we had to hire private security. And people call rent-a-cops. I don't like that term, by the way. They, they're good guys. They work hard, you know, whatever. Anyhow, we hired these four uh, private security guards mm-hmm. for the gig. And we tell them, look, here's the deal. You take care of the stage in front of the stage. If charging women get by you, you know, try to stop them, but don't hurt nobody. Don't knock any woman. Don't hurt anybody. Let them go. They get to the state. We'll take care of the stage. Don't worry about that. All right. And we were very clear about that. So episode one, we're doing this gig down there and it's going along pretty good. And this is rock and music going on. And Elvis all of a sudden looks up into the audience and sees the San Diego chicken. (laughs) The baseball team, the Padres uh, in San Diego had a mascot and it was the San Diego chicken. And this guy was funny as all get out. And I mean, he was really famous too. The guy was great. And now Elvis is singing and the chicken up in the audience is just rocking away, you know, like crazy. And Elvis goes, stop singing. And he goes, it's a chicken. It's a fucking chicken. (laughs) Well, one of those things you had to be there was like hilarious, but what was funny about it is that Elvis would imitate this chicken for months, for months after that. You'd go, what all that kind of crap. But anyway, the second episode, I'm standing there on the stage and I see this girl jump up and she's booging down the aisle and I know she's going for it. So the security guy, he jumps out in front of her like this, you know, making like a snow angel, right? And she stops and hesitates for a second and then kicks the guy in the nuts just dead on. Oh, Guy drops into a little ball and I immediately fell in love. That's my kind of woman right there, boy. <laughs> Anyhow, she's about seven or eight feet away from me and I'm standing on the edge of the stage. And she hesitates. She doesn't know, you know, quite what to do. So she starts to go again and sees me and stops. Hey, you know her. You know her. Yeah. So, yeah. so I just wave at her and say, yeah, come on. Come on. 
and she starts to come forward, but she doesn't trust me. You know, she, she, whatever. Anyhow, so I help her up on the stage, and she runs over and jumps on Elvis and gets the scarf and the kiss and all that stuff. And I let Red took her off the stage from the other side, and that was it. But that was the story of San Diego. But she, she knew how she knew how to she knew how to put the punter the punting to the, the goalpost right there. Poof. Oh, I love that woman. Gave me a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like the world's cool. ugliest ring. Yeah, you know that that ring is in uh, Graceland, by the way, right now. Oh, that's in Graceland too now. Yeah, it's it's probably worth hundred fifty thousand dollars, two hundred thousand. I I would imagine, yeah. But yeah. It, I can't imagine who would wear it other than Liberace. Because uh, Liberace so, so wanted so to buy it from me. Yeah. 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 So he goes a a cloudy red. What is that? Star ruby. Yeah, it was a, as big it, as a duck egg. It was forty carat natural star ruby, surrounded by fourteen diamonds that were very very nice, by the way, all set in eighteen carat gold. Thing weighed five ounces. Well, Dan said I'll trade you an old t-shirt for it. Dodge, you kind of did put the build up there. It was actually worn in you know so many different UFC matches. Now come on, you gotta get us butter it up a little bit better than what you did there now. Come on, just still, well Elvis gave him that ring because he told him it was the world's ugliest ring. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told him it was wow. the gaudiest, gaudiest ring. Gaudiest. I ever saw. Okay. Yeah, that's uh well, I mean I, I, well, did you wear it for a little bit to at least uh I wore it for years. Did you really? When I was a dealer in casinos, I used to wear it. And people would go, holy crap, what was that thing? Okay, but it this, started, this, it started this is a segment, the this is a segment of your life that we didn't talk about. You're a dealer also. So I, I get what I, what I was asking about, you know, what, what games you like to play and stuff like that at the casinos. I didn't realize because you're hitting, you're, you're talking about these different percentages of, of what games are the best games to play and stuff like that. I think, man, this guy's a, he's, he spent way too much time at these casinos right now. And now you say that you actually were a dealer. I did yeah, not, I've, did I know we covered that portion of it? I, I, have, I have had a number of careers actually <laughs> um, over my lifetime and uh, being a dealer and a pit boss is one of them. I also was an environmental test engineer for 12 years. And for four of those years, I test fired solid propellant rocket engines. I worked on shit that landed on the moon. And, I, and the technology today is like voodoo to me. I was a crash test dummy for married men for 18 years. So <laughs> I got the scores to prove it. Well, Dave, I tell you what, uh, you have lived an amazing life here so far. And again, I, I know we're just always scratching the surface here. Dave Hepler, and with two different books out, uh, book number one, Elvis, What Happened? And then book number two, uh, The Elvis Experience, just three years ago. 
The website, www.thedavehebler.com. If you're interested in uh, learning more about uh, Dave and, and to acquire one of his autographed copies of his book. And uh, I mean, what else? Have, 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 what have we missed here? I mean, I, I know we've, we've chatted for a while here. And I don't, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but is there is there a great story to close on that would, would make sense here? Well, there's the five years I spent with Jeff. <laughs> uh oh. And I'll tell you what, I am not going to say a word about it because I'm going to let <laughs> Jeff tell you all about, you know, uh, SOG. <laughs> well, I, I want you to, because I was thinking about this earlier, the, the interesting trip when we did, we went down to do the combination martial arts and shooting training for Cementos Mexicanos in Monterey. Oh, yeah. Where the one guy fell in love with your brother and the other guy, remember Octavio? Yeah. Who was so strong because he was so tense all the time. Dave leaned over and whispered in my ear, this guy would be the perfect advertisement for Charles Atlas's dynamic tension. <laughs> but he could not move. I mean, literally, he was almost like a statue because he was just... Yeah, hundred percent tensed all the time, and he he moves like this, you know. We and we're trying to get him to do some martial arts moves, and it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, I mean what, why? I mean, did you ever ask him why he was like that? I mean, did, was he in pain or something like this, or was it? Uh, I it sounds like he's doing uh, isometrics. It sounds like something from yeah. isometrics, or just he was doing isometrics twenty four seven. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, and then there was. Great big guy who took a shine to Dave's younger brother, who we call the penguini in my book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Dennis. Every, I thought Dennis was going to have a heart attack. Dennis, every time we were going to lunch or whatever, you'd look around and there'd be Dennis, and this guy'd have his arm around him. What's the name of your book there, Jeff? Huh? What's the name of your book, Jeff? Vagabonds, Tourists in the Heart of Darkness. That's a good book, by the way. Your, your partner there claims to have read it. Yeah, I got it. I not yet. And Dave's a character in it. He's 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 briefly mentioned in a few chapters. Yeah. Okay. Repeat that title one more time. Vagabonds. Vagabonds, tourists in the heart of darkness. It's by by me and Nick. Tours in the heart of darkness. Think yes. about tours in the heart of darkness. I heard that phrase, tourists in the heart of darkness, from Mark Stein. And I said to myself, that describes my life right there. That's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. I've just been a tourist in the heart of darkness. Well, when, when did you actually write this then, Jeff? Um, it's been uh, it's been out for about 13 or 14 months now it came out okay. last summer yeah in either june or july i don't remember which okay so and then if people are interested in, in learning more about this available on amazon it's a, it's a great book they that it's hear that that's the highest praise that i've ever gotten 
<laughs> the, ama- the amazing John Fry. Handsome. Yeah, you, know, you don't even have to be on the toilet to appreciate that book, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that book you appreciate the dinner table in bed. Well, I can I have stories about Dave, I can tell too, you know. Well, I mean it's so but one one of my favorites was do when tell, I was, do tell. He also ran the international karate championships in Long Beach for a few years. And I was there with him one time. And it was when martial arts was just really becoming a popular phenomenon. Because you had, you know, the the TV show Kung Fu was on television and and uh, Bruce Lee had just really made himself a huge superstar. And it was all that was going on. So I'm sitting next to Dave at the internationals. And he says, uh, I said, Dave, you know, you know more about this than anybody I've ever met or ever will meet. Been in the martial arts world forever. Who's the best? He said, well, I don't know if I can tell you who the best is. And he said, well, come on. I mean, you've seen everybody. You know everybody. And he said, well, Jeff, the two best I've ever seen in the ring in a controlled situation is Chuck Norris and Mike Stone. Well, yeah, you may not even remember this. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And and I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He said, but on the other hand, there ain't a martial artist in this building that would go out in the back alley with Fred Brewster. <laughs> <laughs> and That's I true. wound up becoming really close friends with Fred. In fact, I spent um, most of a week with him in California about two weeks ago. Mm. He's still he's still going. Um, uh, he's amazing. Isn't he? I think he's two years older than you are. He is. Yeah. Yeah. He's older than me. And his wife is the same age as my son, Rebecca. Yeah. She and Russell are the same age. Oh, my. Uh, he's 10 years older than me. And she's the same age as my youngest child. It's an uh, interesting, and it, it's been like 14 years now. It still works. It's incredible. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah, I'll tell you what, we unfortunately we lost Gene LaBelle, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. No. Uh, Judo Gene, yeah. He was yeah. great. He was fucking great. Phenomenal, yeah. you know. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Boy, talk about a pioneer. Yeah. He was doing it before yeah. anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he was a referee. In the uh, Antonio Inoki Muhammad Ali fight, you know, wow. <laughs> back, back in seventy something, and uh, you know he he he's always been around, and he just he was awesome. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of uh, loose stories that I have no idea what the veracity of them is about him and Steven Seagal. I'm sure you've probably heard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow managed yeah. to turn Steven Seagal into Jerry Nadler for a brief period of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a far stretch, so you know. <laughs> Wouldn't be hard. Oh, yeah. 
that concludes another episode of Toxic Masculinity. Hope that uh, we entertained you a little bit here. If we offend you or in any aspects, well, you know, you, we still live in America where you have the right to watch us or not. So we'll take our chances when it comes to that. We're just, uh, Don Fry and myself, we're just a couple uh, uh, gentlemen uh, that still identify as being men when we wake up in the morning. And uh, we're going to let you know how we feel about things in our own wacky type of, of way. We had a couple phenomenal guests here this evening with uh, Dave Hepler, uh, who basically was uh, a bodyguard for the ever so famous uh, Elvis Presley. And I think Jeff, it, it was you that actually brought this all together, right? The, the, uh, the, the meeting between uh, Tony, Don and myself here. So yep. we appreciate- I take the blame for that. Yep. Thank you for watching another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity. You better like, subscribe, and share, or I'm going to come to your house.